0: Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. It's another packed show today as we unpack the closure of Holden in Australia by General Motors, the continuing reverberations of the High Court decision, and we also look at what's coming out of the United Kingdom in respect of the BBC. Is it also something we can do in Australia with the ABC? Uh, Don't forget, Looking Forward is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate. As always, we'll close with our Books and Culture segment. And today we look at, well, of course, a comedy about Hitler. Uh, What else do we have? Uh, We have a Burt Lancaster classic from the golden age of Hollywood. Right up to date there, Andrew. A new podcast (laughs) from Eric Weinstein. And just to mix it up... I'll talk about an actual book, which is on the East India Company and that's by the great William Dalrymple. Uh, it's time now to introduce our panelists. First of all, my co-host from RMIT University, Dr. Chris Berg. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Chris. Uh, welcoming back our very regular panelist, Dr. Andrew <laughs> Bushnell. Oh, not hey, doctor yet. Sorry. No. No, no, it no seems let's to be not. Let's,
1: let's let's not be too presumptive. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody passes that PhD, Andrew. I don't know whether you know this. Got, so. a, got a bit ahead of myself there. Pressure on. I did that to
0: Aaron Lane once, and we had to cut. <laughs> he was very sensitive because he was actually waiting on his thesis to, oh, be, okay. to, to oh, be approved.
2: No. Yeah, right. it's actually a bit unethical, or not unethical, but it's unprofessional to call yourself a doctor before yeah. before they've given you the proper stamp.
0: <laughs> very good. And um, uh, and another lawyer, but also the IPA's newest researcher, uh, welcome to the panel, Dara McDonald.
3: Great to be here.
0: Great. Great to have you. So we're going to kick off, as I said, with Holden, which is the Australian subsidiary of uh, General Motors and I should start, start with I guess an emotional note which is um, Holden as a brand it's a tribute to marketing or to something but it means a lot to a lot of Australians it's part of their heritage part of their history particularly the older generations the days of Ford versus Holden we could spend a lot of time on the emotional aspects of it, but not for nothing our economists called exasperating calculators. <laughs> Chris Berg, tell us what this really means.
2: I, I, I like exasperating. Whether I'm a calculator is a separate question. Um, so the Holden brand has been axed af, uh, three years after General Motors ceased producing Holden cars um, in Australia. Um, uh, this, of course, has had a number of ramifications. Holden, like uh, the other Australian car manufacturers, was a beneficiary of really a century's worth of um, protectionism, all the way back to the First World War, when um, the government started putting uh, uh, putting tariffs on motor bodies. Um, uh, Holden itself is an Australian icon. In part, or mainly, because of political decisions made by the government, particularly the Chifley government, um, uh, to support Holden um, as a as an Australian icon, um, there's the political ramica- ramifications of this are quite interesting. So, um, uh, when the uh, when G- General Motors made this decision. Um, They only gave the Commonwealth government something like 15 minutes warning and Scott Morrison came out and said he was very very angry about the decision to shut down the Holden brand as and this is to quote uh, the Prime Minister like I think many Australians would be Australian taxpayers put millions of dollars into this multinational company yet they let the brand just wither away on their watch and are leaving it behind. I think it's very disappointing. I think at the end of the day. Shows throwing all that taxpayer money at that at them, they were never going to respect that. Now, free market economists like myself, like the Institute of Public Affairs, have argued for a long, long time. Well, precisely that's that's precisely why you don't fund these sorts of companies. But it is absolutely the case, um, Scott, as you point out, that um, it does have a. It is an iconic brand, and it's actually a very important moment, probably in the history of industry policy. In Australia, I might throw to you first, Andrew, what's your takeaway of this? Um,
1: well, it's a symbolic moment, but it's an important one, I think. Yeah, well, the first thing is, I mean, Scott Morrison's response, I think, is... there's. Politicians are never quite as pathetic as when they're outraged in a futile way. <laughs> <laughs> so here he is. Oh, I'm out. I'm outraged. You know, we gave them two Screaming billion dollars in subsidies and, and things like that, right? And there's absolutely no intention on his part or anyone else's part in the parliament to do anything about this, right? So why he has to say it, I guess, but outrage. And I, like I, I just it's it's a lot like it. the,
2: um, uh, just to interrupt you, it's a lot like when the treasurer traditionally yells at the banks for not passing on the interest rate. Like They're not going to change the law to require them to pass on yeah, the interest rate and that would be terrible. Exactly. you just got to so, scream for a while. So
1: I think it was Bob Catter that came out and said, well, we should just basically expropriate their IP <laughs> and nationalise the brand. Yeah, now, I, th- the- I
0: think he actually said it should be mandatory that all cars have to be Australian. Yeah, you, so, Australians would not be so, allowed to buy any car not built in Australia. Now, a word in defence <laughs> of <Bob>
1: Cutter <laughs> is <laughs> that is that um, at least that is taking seriously the idea that the Parliament might do something, right? <laughs> Scott Morrison's just out there blathering away, but I think the um, to go to Scott's point about being sentimental, I don't have any particular sentimentality about about cars, but and I always thought um, when I was younger that. It is a bit silly to be sentimental about brands, but when you think about the demise of the car manufacturing industry in Australia and you compare it to today's reality, which is that basically everyone has the choice of barista school or homelessness, um, you do have, uh, I think, there a legitimate mo- cause for a moment of reflection about whether, um, you know, the economic reality of this catching up to General Motors is something to be celebrated um, because I, I think that what's symbolic here is the the transition of Australia away from a country that um, perhaps ever really thought of itself as, as a nation uh, towards basically a, a big Singapore.
0: Well, I think um, there was never any... Um Uh, there was always a bipartisan idea or who doesn't have an idea that wouldn't it be nice if we had a manufacturing capability in Australia? But the road that we went down, as Chris said, 100 years ago, was tariffs. And how did that work out?
3: Not very well. I I think um, Holden was kind of, you know, death by a thousand cuts in terms of regulatory uh, policy, but then at the same time it was a kind of a corporatist Frankenstein that they kept on you know, breathing life back into it with subsidies and so on. So, you know, I don't have so much, uh, it wasn't so much of a shock in a way because it's kind of been on, you know, on life support for quite some time now. Um, But, yeah, as as, uh, lots of the panellists have uh, mentioned, that it's very much an iconic brand and certainly from growing up in country Australia where it's, you know, it's very much the Holden or Ford family or the, you know, People that are very much attached to not even wanting to drive a or get into a Ford because it's such a you know um, it's such a cultural phenomenon in that respect. Yeah, so it's it's kind of it's kind of like a is is a significant moment for Australia.
1: Yeah and There's this kind yeah. of tail chasing aspect yeah. of it. I think that Holden is very symbolic of. So you have the underlying economic conditions um, regarding, you know, the high wages, the cost of getting the materials for things, setting up factories and all of these these other things that go towards the cost of actually manufacturing something in Australia. And that was all taken off the table. And then the um, subsidies and things were the way of basically chasing that tail. So they'd made this Mm -hmm. decision about the structure of the economy and then had to basically try and correct it in this specific case. Um, And so, again... This comes back to, you know, governments basically, you know, talk a lot about this. So, like you say, Scott, wouldn't it be great to manufacture cars, but the hard work to have a country that might manufacture cars, all of that was taken off the table in favour of cash handouts, which, of course, you know, General Motors is very happy to pocket, but yeah, but, a I,
2: in. So, but the manufacture of cars is—it's um, a 1930s, 1940s version of. Wouldn't it be great if Australia had a Silicon Valley as well? No, mm. no There's nothing inherent about either the car industry that um, m- that leads to prosperity, nor Silicon Valley that leads to prosperity, nor anything inherent about the Australian. Population, or the Australian landscape, or the Australian industrial profile—that says, well, you know, Australia and cars. That's those are the two things that match together, and and uh, I think it's a stronger. I mean, of all the many many problems that protectionism has, one of them is how it doesn't do what it says on the box, and it often holds back hmm. the manufacture or the production of whatever you want to um, artificially. Um, support rather than encourages it and the the thing that's quite striking and having looked a little bit into the history of the car industry and its relationship to the um, car industry in the United States in Australia um, is that we were well far behind on significant innovations at least particularly in those key decades in the 1930s 1940s and 1950s our industry was about 10 years behind in getting some really key innovations like closed-top cars and full-steel bodies and all that sort of thing. Um, These are really critical things that um, uh, meant that the US industry was so much further ahead of us. I think, though, Andrew, you've got a really good point about um, you can't separate the uh, decision to subsidise manufacturing from the, the simultaneous decision to introduce things like the living wage um, or the, the working man's income, um, the high regulatory barriers that um, uh, suffuse the entire economy. Yeah, so- yeah.
0: Sorry,
3: I was just going to say that another aspect of manufacturing is that you know this is a huge ener- energy-intensive industry in terms of making taking raw materials and producing something out of them. It takes a huge amount of energy to be able to produce those those materials, um, and as we've seen with you know the closing down of factories in South Australia, like lots of the um, the high costs of energy is also uh, a contributing factor to no, that. That's, that's a very good. Yeah.
0: That's a very good point. Yes, yeah, we, we triple energy costs and then wonder why why manufacturing industry is closing down, and that's that's still happening with our mm-hmm. uh, a lot of residual industries which are more tied to resources mm-hmm. such as um, uh, chemicals and so on. And um, it was also relevant to I think the much more consequential decision um, was back in 2014 when uh toyota reached its its crisis point um toyota had taken over from holden and ford in terms of sales way back in 2000 one of the reasons of course why holden is being closed is because sales are rubbish i mean the cars are rubbish i mean general motors is rubbish um it was nationalized it was owned by barack obama what they
2: need is more taxpayer funding
0: yeah that's right so let's take a rubbish american company and give it more money thank you bob Catter. (laughs) Um, So more realistically, Toyota, uh, which is an excellent car maker, did give Australia a really good go and they invested um, uh, mostly in Victoria, um, which means they didn't have so many South Australian friends, but mostly in Victoria, and they built new plants in Altona and then realised as soon as they started operating, they couldn't make any money out of them. And one of the things they tried to do, I've been going back through the story, was... um, was say, look, can we have a look at our EBA? Because this is not set up for productivity. And this is where you hit the classic thing of tariffs, which is, of course, tariffs are producing economic rents, and then it just becomes a game of who's going to claim the rents. And over time, the unions had claimed the rents. You know, none of this gets you know, helps consumers. And when Toyota actually said respectfully, in their, in their very Japanese way, you know, might you consider that we renegotiate this EBA... The AMWU went to the barricades. Um, Joe Hockey, to his credit, was doing his bit of jawboning in, cre- in Parliament, saying, uh, "As treasurer, do you know? Please have a look at this. You know, this this is make or break for Toyota. The union movement would not believe them. Uh, it would not countenance any change. They they fought changes to the EBA in court. Lo and behold, what did Toyota do? They said, that's it.'" We're out of here. They had they had all you know four hundred million dollar plant on the books, which essentially they wrote off. So um, Holden is perhaps the most emotionally charged uh, exit uh, of the car makers. But I think the the end of the industry was actually Toyota. And and uh, if I can just hog the microphone, Chris, you talked about comparative advantage. In effect, the one thing that Australia might be good at in terms of cars, given you know. Big distances, shit roads, you know, very hot, all sorts of things. Maybe we could do utes. And lo and behold, what does Ford do? It has the Ford Ranger, which is a global brand designed in Australia. A little bit of comparative advantage actually sneaks through somewhere. Yeah, that's right. And
2: I I also want to make a – you've brought up Joe Hockey, and Joe Hockey has been wildly defamed over the last couple of days. um, uh, A couple of newspaper um, covers that – implied that he'd been yelling at Holden just to to get out of the country if they don't like it here. Um, uh, Joe Hockey, in 2013, when we were having these discussions about whether to continue the car subsidies or reduce them, not eliminate them, but reduce them, um, had been trying to get General Motors to commit to stay if they received the same level of tariffs or subsidies, I should say, as as they had in the past. And um, General Motors was incredibly cagey because they were leaving anyway. They knew that it was uneconomic to produce here, regardless of how much um, uh, taxpayer money we funneled them. Um, but, of course, now the coalition government is being blamed because it should have supported the car industry more and more. Um, it does strike me, um, uh, Andrew, it does strike me that this comes in the midst of a conversation that's been happening in the United States around the role of industry policy, particularly on the conservative right. Um, I noticed that the, um, uh, the the conservative economist, I think he is, Oren Cass, has set up a sort of post-free market conservative movement that he's quite a notable um, advocate of conservative industry policy. How do you see this tying into that conversation?
1: Yeah, there's, there's sort of two aspects to this that I'll, I'll Bring up the first is an is an aspect that used to be talked about a lot in Australia, but is not so much anymore. Which is that there is a national security, national identity aspect to domestic heavy manufacturing that sets it apart from, say, Silicon Valley. um, Which is that. it's a, it's a very long lead time towards manufacturing sophisticated military hardware um, and that you need to have some sort of domestic manufacturing capability in so that it can be converted in time. But of I've process. never understood
2: that. So I remember um, uh, the Labor Party in 2007 saying this quite explicitly, like we're never going to be able to build fighter jets if we can't. Builds cars now. The idea, <laughs> the idea that you can convert a car factory to a fighter jet factory, seems to me in 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 any time frame seems ludicrous. Yeah, well, knock it down. Look, it's
1: it's 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 not obviously a one to one substitution, but I think the argument usually is that there is some sort of uh, reserve capacity of of knowledge, engineering knowledge, um, and um, as well as the supply chains. So the materials that go into these things are, are often the same, so. I think th- – and, and, and so that aspect of it is that um, for a nation to be able to declare itself a nation, it needs to be able to defend its territory, and part of that is having access to the materials that are required for that defence. So that's one aspect that doesn't get talked about a lot in Australia anymore, um, which means that essentially our strategic reserve for military goods is Sorry. the market – the international market the other the I'm other t- closest oh,
0: sorry i'm just hold that second thought please because i am going to interrupt that's the story that's told you're right that's the story that's told they are finding in in adelaide where that story was told which is one of the ways christopher pine <laughs> justified you know the submarine decision which is going to cost us like over 200 billion dollars it's like oh all those workers that came out of the car industry can now go and work on submarines um, with the greatest respect to those workers who are hardworking, they've got all their trade qualifications, they've done everything they needed to do to work in the Australian car industry such as, it, such as it is, when they apply for jobs with the French, the French are like, wow, this is so far off what you need to produce something as complex as a submarine. And, uh, you know, we can talk about retraining and all of these things, but there is, there is a chasm between the sort of capabilities. So these are not fungible things, but... So well,
1: fung- fungibility is an interesting uh, concept in this, in this debate because um, ultimately this strategic element of heavy manufacturing, this argument that's traditionally been made, comes down to a, a, a very basic critique of comparative advantage and the substitution of value, which is that when push comes to shove, it is better to be the tank-producing, helicopter-producing country than the wine-producing agricultural country. Um, And this is just a basic fact of international relations. So that's that one aspect. The other aspect that I would would bring up, just that I think is an element of this debate, particularly in the United States, is about different kinds of work being uh, valuable in different ways to different people. And in particular, heavy manufacturing, the, uh, the, the use of manpower, um, the idea that at the end of the day, a team of men will have produced something tangible um, and that, that having a, a, a sort of a more beneficial psychological effect than, say, um, you know, God bless them, but selling tailored suits or whatever it is that we're all supposed to do now. Um, <laughs> there, is, there is an aspect of this that is, is based on a denial of, well, arguably anyway, uh, basic male psychology about what it is that makes men in particular happy um, and that the the rising enemy, the, the alienation that we see in our modern society despite the surfeit of goods that we have uh, comes down to a lack of meaning but a lack of meaning that you derive specifically from being engaged in a team effort towards a tangible result. Uh, did, I, I wanted, Jara. How would you respond to that? <laughs>
3: um, I, I think there is there is some value in in that argument of you know that work in in its essence has changed a lot from um, you know tangible manufacturing of goods to more of a services based industry. I think it it kind of echoes you know there was this um, clip of Bloomberg over the past few days talking about farmers in a very kind of. Uh, paternalistic way of saying, oh, anyone can dig a hole and, you know, put a seed in and let it grow, but it takes a particular type of person to, um, you know, produce a technological good in Sil- Silicon ba- Valley, for instance. And I think, there, you know, it was very paternalistically put, but at the same time there is um, there is a argument to be had there that not necessarily just because... Um, Jobs are cropping up in this sector, and jobs are going in this sector. That the, you can move these jobs from there to there. There has to be something for these people to do. What that is is the question I think, is, which is most plaguing our societies at the moment, um, in terms of what to do with the um, the loss of jobs, and particularly in the manufacturing and the heavy heavy manufacturing type of sector. You know, and, and this is kind of why we've seen. Candidates like um, Andrew Yang crop up, and you know, with the sole policy of basically a UBI to help um, with the automation of particular jobs, and yeah.
1: basically palliate people.
3: Yeah, palliate people exactly. Uh, I want to take yeah. up
2: something, and this is a um, uh, half-formed thought, but the idea that um, this, this is looking forward. This, this is the place to do forward, it, mate. Yeah, so, <laughs> half-formed um, thoughts why, are our why speciality. Why not record your half-formed thoughts in the map to listeners around? The country. Um so it, it, it strikes me that if you follow the argument the first argument that you made, Andrew, about um the relationship between domestic um capabilities and national security. Um uh the idea that um Silicon Valley versus say a manufacturing industry is wildly out of date, given the discussions that we're having right now about um a cybersecurity, B, um, should Huawei be able to build infrastructure in in Australia, the UK, or the United States? Each of which have different perspectives on this, obviously. Um, but it seems to me that the the frontiers of our national security. Um, uh, uh debates and strategic position are actually in those technological ones so yeah they they may not be getting what you have posited to be a the sort of masculine benefits or the 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 um, building stuff with your hands benefits but it, if if we were to follow that argument much more closely and if we would take it really seriously, we would be not subsidizing cars but we would be subsidizing, Coders, and we would be subsidising um, uh, Telstra. Well, we, would, we
1: do that as well. No, no,
2: we we absolutely do, but 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 that doesn't seem to be where this debate about industry policy is. Well, I think and I don't. It, yeah. Why why is it not?
1: Well, it's absolutely true that there is a sort of a, this new frontier, a new battlefront, if you like. But um, the argument is that uh, the residual uh, sort of the underlying. Fact of the matter is that physical force wins the day. There was a few years ago. It's a few years ago now. Be about ten years. There was a notorious um, war game in the United States where they they mocked up an invasion of the Southern United States, and basically the invading force um,
2: yeah turned off their phones, and turned off their phones,
1: <laughs> ran all their messages by by courier, um, and were basically able to to get an end run around their high tech opponents. And this was this was look, it's a little bit overstated of course, Mm. because direct attacks on the the electronic capabilities of, of various Military hardware will shut them down, um, as we do to um, Iran. Ve- but the but time. I think a very just uh, to preempt maybe the the culture segment. I think a very good movie about <laughs> this point. No, no, no. This is and this is. Yep. Let, let me let go, me do this. No, go, ahead, two, go ahead. Two minutes. But whatever. <laughs> red, but, red
0: Red Dawn. A bunch of school kids no, fight no, off the no, Russians. No,
1: no, no. Uh, so a movie that was overlooked at the time because. The actual mechanics of the plot are a little bit stupid, but it was, it's called Black Hat. as by uh, uh, Michael Mann, it has Chris Hemsworth in the lead role. It's about this hacker who gets broken, who gets taken out of prison by the CIA to do this thing. But anyway, the point of that movie is. He ends up, so you've got these ha- hackers, you know, it's one of those movies about yeah, hackers and, and everyone's bang, typing, on, very everyone's fast, typing yeah. compu- on computers <laughs> and that. But in the end, basically... Just always makes great content. In the end, people typing. it comes down to an act of actual physical violence. Yep. The movie is resolved. And the, the point of the movie is, and it's made throughout the movie, that for all of this sort of digital wizardry, it's actually all of the analog steps that this guy but takes, that's the including stabbing the guy at the end.
2: But that's the requirement for Hollywood, and I just the best hacking movie is Sneakers. Um, uh, uh, and in Sneakers, it, it, it's, it's all about cryptography and, and um, uh, digital disputes and whatnot. But eventually, they just have to sneak in somewhere. And, and, but we need to do that so, to, so we can watch it. Anyway, this is just an opportunity yeah. for me to mention sneakers on the podcast. We should probably move on <laughs> that, to the that next we had, topic. I was going to say, that, <laughs> that was our books and culture segment.
0: Um, no, but we do, we do need to revisit. Um, uh, we spoke about the High Court decision last week, um, but it is still rumbling through the Australian body politics. So uh, Chris and I decided it was worth revisiting.
2: Yeah, so um, when the High Court decision came through, it came through the day before we recorded uh,
0: Love and Tom's
2: Love and Tom's um, the High Court decision about um, uh, if you had Aboriginal Australian identity and yet were not a citizen, should you be considered to be an alien under the Constitution, or um, or a citizen, or something else? Which the High Court, some justices have decided, is a Belonger. Um, the reason that we thought it was a good idea to revisit is. Um, the uh, the fallout has, has been really substantial. We read in the paper um, uh, lots of new arguments and lots of new concerns, lots of new um, uh, arguments by advocates as well, um, I should say, um, in defence of this case, but particularly how it interacts with um, our ongoing debates about the voice to parliament, constitutional recognition and so forth. And of course, we, we have the opportunity to talk to Andrew and Dara about it. I know both of you have been looking at these decision and its implication very closely. Andrew, I might throw to you. I've got and, a lot and, of...
0: And uh, have law degrees.
2: And and you have mm-hmm. law degrees, which helps. Um, a, long, uh, a
1: long time ago. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, uh, uh, I, I've got a lot of questions to ask both of you, in fact, but um, I just thought we'd throw Andrew and then Dara Um What was your takeaway from this decision or how do you think it's played out over the last week or so?
1: Yeah, I think you know, we're only just starting to see now, as you say, some commentary pieces come out. It's taken a week for everyone to digest it because there were seven separate judgments. It's about a, it's about five hundred paragraphs long. The judge, the various judgments. So, it's taken a while. Uh, I think, and 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 to be honest, um, like I'm still forming my own views about exactly what it means. But the the top level message to take away from this, I think, is that the High Court has. Decided to read into the Constitution um, Indigenous identity as separate from now, or well, separate might not be the right word, but as a as a specific subset of what it means to be Australian. Um, so for most of us, our Australianness is determined by our citizenship. The High Court has decided that because some people's uh, descent uh, predates the Constitution and and more specifically the reception of the common law to Australia. Um, that their Australianness it has a, a, a different aspect to us. Now, this is um, a somewhat radical departure from how we have us understood Australianness. Um, but Australianness isn't in the Constitution. Citizenship is no citizenship, and so and this is this is the thing about um, the na- the modern nation state is that the nation state sort of emerges from the idea that a particular people have a, a state that controls a particular territory um, and there's membership of that group um, but when you control this territory and you want to admit people to your territory and there's all kinds of good reasons why you want to have people coming and going from your territory we've formalized membership as citizenship and we actually there's actually a disjunction that exists in all modern nation states between membership of the, the sort of foundational group and citizenship so in that sense, Um, the decision mirrors that but what it says is that within that what it says is that within the Australian nation-state membership of a very specific group is different from membership of that larger group in whose name the Commonwealth exists Um, and I think the implications of that may well be far-reaching in further decisions as they transfer this logic to other aspects of the constitution uh, but that of course remains to be seen. They've all said well, not all of them, but the majority has hinted that they think that this is um, not um, a, a reversal of Mabo. Mabo says that uh, Indigenous land rights can be recognised without any impact on the sovereignty of the Commonwealth, more specifically the Queen of Australia. Um, but, uh, and, and the majority says that they're not uh, weakening that, but it remains to be seen how future courts in future cases will expand this this phenomenon. Dara.
3: Yeah, um, I would echo that in the sense that this decision leaves a lot to be desired in the sense that it leaves more questions than it an answers in in many respects. The the kind of the concept of citizenship is a is a legal concept as opposed to what you know and, and uh the Chief Justice was very explicit in her judgment and going through actually what the legal position is and that it's not necessarily for the court and it's definitely not for the court as she decided to make these, you know, um, metaphysical decisions about belonging and uh, what constitutes a special connection to the land. Instead, we have a very clear precedent and statute law that um, gives that power to the parliament, the parliamentary sovereignty to decide, you know, who is a citizen, who is not a citizen. So it begs the question of, okay, so if citizenship of Australia is you know, a parcel of rights and responsibilities or rights and obligations that are conferred on someone that you know, it has a citizenship of Australia, what then does the third category mean? What, what, what are the, the reciprocal rights and responsibilities that flow from having a third category? Um, and the other aspect of this is that um, the... Particularly, the um, majority judgments are not based on precedent per se. They had to go, you know, to the far off corners of the land and commentaries on um, the laws of England and various colonial um, extracts to be able to find, um, you know, magic up this kind of judgment. Basically, and so yeah, there's there's a lot to be desired in the sense that it leaves so many more questions than it than it answers, and what the flow-on effects from this is, um, yeah, is what w- will remain to be seen, really. I,
2: so. I, I have a constitutional question um, uh, or a, a constitutional interpretation question. So there are seven separate judgments, three to four. Um, is it – and, and George Williams, um, the legal scholar George Williams, has a piece today um, about the judgment where he points out that um, the fact – Like like it is a problem, or it is remarkable, I should say, from his perspective. But it seems to me to be a problem that there are seven separate judgments that they couldn't, the judges could not come to a consensus of some description about this. So it strikes me that that obviously creates a problem for lower courts because they've got to interpret certainly four separate judgments in the majority, and then potentially three um, uh, other issues. Is it is it a problem? Does this say something about the high courts? Functioning does this say
1: something about this particular case? I think it, it, it can it can be that in very important cases, every judge wants to put his or her opinion, but that's on indulgent, the record. isn't it? I mean, but it's not their in, job. I mean, you can write an op-ed if to, you want. But to defend them just a little, and, and I actually incline probably more towards your view that they actually have a responsibility to try and unify the law somewhat. But um, to defend them somewhat in the grand sort of tri- evolutionary tradition of the common law. <laughs> Um, basically you put out these judgments and the strongest one survives. Mm. Um, and this is what we saw. The, uh, back at law school, it used to, I, I've all, and since then, I've always hated the high court because the Australian high court always issues separate judgments, um, almost as a matter of course. And so for a long time, for example, Australian negligence law had two competing strands that you had to learn both in law school. <laughs> and when it came to your exam, you basically had to apply twice yeah. uh, the law, which was is bizarre. And so I incline more to your view, but in their defence, because this is quite a, well, a, a very novel, radical decision that they've taken, um, it might be for the best that the four majority judges have each stated their reasoning. And we'll, we'll see whether that lives or dies, particularly when read next to the chief justices what I would say extremely clear uh, and pr- and precise and admirably economical uh, dissent which basically just says here's the precedent for how we interpret aliens uh, it, the alien power and what the Parliament can do with it uh, applied to this case it means this result that's it yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah. I would agree with that as the one plus one equals two kind of judgment like a you know you look at the Chief Justice's judgment and it's this big and you look at Eldermen's, which is the the very egregious one and it's like, you know, this big basically in, in terms For of... For anyone listening on
0: this, the podcast, oh, yeah. uh, Dara's tiny, fingers tiny, went further apart.
3: Yeah, <laughs> tiny, tiny amount of paper... For the chief justice, and a lot of paper for the egregious Edelman judgment. Visual so, gags yeah. much less effective yes, on podcasts. Yes, this is true.
0: Um, I have something I wanted to throw in. So Edelman's judgment uh, by far the thickest, and and uh, we have got into metaphysics, but that was the word he used. And uh, one of the other things that he did, which annoyed me when I read it, was the Commonwealth Solicitor General had led a line of argument that if you go down this road of saying that we are unable to deport. These um, uh, not uh, this new category of not only in non-citizens, because it must have been countenanced in discussion. Um, uh, the the solicitor general said, "Well, but then you know, some 60-year-old who's who's trying to get back to Australia, notwithstanding a criminal offence, um, could just say I'm Aboriginal and and try and get back into the country." And Edelman went out of his way to ridicule this as uh, being a, a low form of argument quoted precedent to the extent that this is the type of argument which the High Court should never countenance because it's like a, a low form of reductio ad absurdum. Thank God for popular culture. Followers of AFL will be aware that Dustin Martin, perhaps the uh, the finest player of this generation, Brownlow medalist, Norm Smith medalist, premiership player with Richmond, has a father in New Zealand uh, who is a former member of the Rebels Motorcycle Club, or current member for all I know, has uh, been unable to return ...to Australia after 20 years in New Zealand... ...because of the very same powers that were uh, used to decide um, uh, in the case of Love v. Toms. So what happens? So here we are. This case, which we think is consequential... ...is not getting much coverage in the popular press. But Dustin Martin's father arrived at the airport in Australia... ...and said, you can't deport me because I am Indigenous... This, so exactly the scenario that the Solicitor-General Gen- had said could happen as a result of this decision did happen. Now, as as it happens, they just put him back on a plane and said, well, you're welcome to apply to a court. But, I mean, this is where we are. And and maybe this it's these kinds of things which will actually broaden the pool of Australians who are actually aware of the... This decision and what it potentially means. It, it should also
2: be said, um, just as a caveat to that, that um, it's not enough just to say, I'm Indigenous, therefore there's a three-part test that you've got to be recognised as Indigenous and you've got to have Indigenous heritage, but it's absolutely right. Um, I, I do want to just um, touch on one other part of this, and this is something that um, has been talked about a lot in um, conservative and free market circles in the last... Week or so, it's what does this mean for the High Court in general? Um, uh, So, Christian Porter, when the decision came out, the Attorney General, Christian Porter, um, made the point that he was investigating whether it was still going to be possible through another means to deport. These two men. Now, I don't overly care whether these two men yeah, are supported. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm much more interested in finding out what does this mean for constitutional interpretation in general. Janet Albrechtson, of course, um, uh, the, the the chairperson, uh, chairman of the IPA, has pointed out that um, two of the judges involved in the majority, I think it is, are up for. Um, uh, will retire in the next year or so. And this gives an opportunity for the government to appoint new judges. Um, uh, there's an article in Lawyers Weekly responding to um, some claims made by the IPA's Morgan Begg that this should this court case should not be used as a reason to um, politicise the High Court. Um, Andrew, Dara, should we politicise the High Court? Uh, well, this, not- this beautiful yeah. unpolitical...
1: Exactly. The, 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 the High Court is already... Political um, and no, it's, it, c- it's and law. And, and, e- it's and even law. if we didn't describe it as political, I think it is a, a, a pretty gross distortion of the rule of law to suggest that we can't criticise the policy outcomes from legal decisions. That's not what the separation of powers means. The, the no, court, I've, I've read otherwise actually yeah, in recent days. It's not. <laughs> it's not just well, the court says it. Therefore, it's. I mean, as that <laughs> has with happened with Marbo, there, there were. Um, Separate judgments. The law was unclear. Uh, the Keating government decided it had to legislate to make the system uh, clearer. Um, so it's not it's not like uh, the parliament just has to do nothing. Um, now as to the the, the politi- political makeup of the court, there has been a reluctance in Australia on the centre right to really engage with the court appointment process. Um, in Australia, we don't have big hearings. We don't have an up or down vote in the Senate. The Attorney General can basically pick whoever he likes. Um, And in this case, what what this case has done is really focus our attention a little bit on, do we have, on our side of politics, a clear statement of what we think a good lawyer actually looks like? Mm. Someone that we think we could trust to have these powers and do this job. So we need to be clear about that. And then there is definitely an aspect about putting the onus on the Attorney-General in a supposedly conservative government to do the right thing. Three of the four in the majority were appointed by coalition governments. Two were appointed by Tony Abbott, who is probably the most conservative Prime Minister we've had, certainly um, probably more conservative even than Howard. Um, So how is it that we end up with the recommendations that get put on the Attorney-General's desk leading to outcomes like this that seem to have upset so many of the government's own supporters. And I think that's uh, those are the, the two questions. What's a good lawyer and how do we get good lawyers' names in front of the Attorney-General? Dara, is there an
2: um, Australian version of... So it, Morgan um, Begg, when he was on the podcast last, was talking to us about the Federalist Society. The Federalist mm-hmm. Society is notable not just for nominating um, a list of judges that they think, uh, a list of potential judges that they should think should be appointed, and of course the Trump administration has picked those up. But also building a idea what conservative legal theory actually is, the originalist interpretation of the Constitution. Is there an Australian version of that? Is there? Unfortunately, yeah.
3: not so much. We haven't, you know, focused on that in the recent past. And then we see on the the Lawyers Weekly um, article that it was. Uh, particularly attacking the idea of a capital C conservative judge, but in this instance, what we're talking about when we say capital C conservative is actually a black letter lawyer, what used to be called a black letter lawyer that's someone that actually views their job as interpreting the law, instead of you know uh, this kind of activist activist streak that we've seen in the High Court recently. Um, so, yeah, the, there's, a, there's not really a, a body of, of work here that we can draw upon so much as in the US, where they have the Federalist Society that is not just putting together a list, which is um, based on criteria, but it's also going back in and looking at it in a philosophical sense of what, and particularly talking about the idea of originalism, of interpreting the Constitution as it was written, um, as opposed to looking at other schools of thought around uh, constitutional interpretation and contextualizing it for the modern times etc cetera, etc cetera. and
0: you so. you were saying that uh, the, the task of doing that in Australia might be a little bit harder than in the US because of the nature of our legal system and
3: yeah so we don't have we don't have a test case um, for instance that in the u.s they they are entitled to interpret the constitution all the way down in lower courts but in Australia the exclusive jurisdiction to the constitution exists at the high court so we don't have test cases particularly this is interesting if you're looking at section uh, 51 of the constitution which is the head of powers and this is the idea that the, um, the federal government is exclusively entitled to these particular powers and anything that isn't in there are called residual powers and that's the, the right of the states to exercise and in recent years we've seen more and more the centralization of the government into you know the federal federal government precisely because these powers have been interpreted particularly broadly and in combination with the um, Section 109, which is the, um, the inconsistencies clause, that anything that is inconsistent between federal and state law, the federal law prevails. So this has also been interpreted broadly. So um, these these two clauses in terms of actually which actually affect the nature of the federalized system of Australia. Um, have no test cases in in the lower courts. We can't actually.
0: So you can't read a judgment by someone yeah. in in the Supreme Court of South Australia or wherever. Yeah, that, and that, know what they that, think
3: about the federalised system because they can
1: only
0: yeah. apply it.
3: Yeah,
1: and that's one, one of the one of the ironies that comes through in this judgment for people on the centre right, um, and this goes to this question of what do, what's a good lawyer. Um, one of the ironies is that this judgment is actually. Very much outside of the normal M.O. of the High Court, the High Court normally reads the power of the Commonwealth Parliament expansively, and so the one time that the High Court <laughs> in living memory steps in to limit a- <laughs> the power of the Parliament, oh, but
2: they can't do that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's on this, and I think that that gives you an idea of of, of how radical the majority judgments are. Mm-hmm. In that, I mean, certainly Edelman basically has to junk. The entire line of precedent around the interpretation of the aliens' power. So, so when we ask ourselves, well, okay, if not these people, then who? Who would you like to have on the court? One of the key questions is, um, which powers should be read expansively and which ones should <laughs> not? Yeah, yeah. Um, because it seems that the High Court perhaps has it around the wrong way. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, Edelman, because uh, he is, uh, was appointed when he was so young, I think has twenty-four years left on the High Court, so I guess the good news for looking forward is we won't be short of material for the next uh, 24 years. I look forward to (laughs) discussing this in... uh, That is great, great news. ...2040. But in the meantime, we we do need a little bit of time, uh, which is probably to organise a gratuitous plug for this book against public broadcasting by um, Chris Berg and Sinclair Davidson, because there is some noise out of the UK that... uh, Boris Johnson and his advisor Dominic Cumming actually want to do something about the BBC?
2: There is, and sometimes um, from the Australian vantage, given the, how much the ABC looks to the BBC culturally, um, organisationally, um, it's sometimes striking how strange the BBC's um, uh, financial setup is. So there's a proposal out of the um, UK, potentially from. Boris Johnson's office or potentially just Dominic Cummings running his mouth um to move away from the license fee model that funds the BBC to a subscription model. So the subscription model would be something along a Netflix um situation um how that m- um matches to free-to-air television I'm, I'm not sure that they've totally decided but the but the key thing is that they still have a license fee. So in the UK um, you pay as a TV. If you're interested in watching free-to-air TV or the BBC's online offerings, you have to buy a license for 154 pounds a year. 154 um, uh, pounds and uh, uh, per year for a colour license. And if you only want a black and white license, you can buy that <laughs> at 52 pounds a year. Um, now, uh, the question might be: What if I don't want to pay that? Um, well, it's against the law. You yeah. have to you have to pay it if you want to watch the television. How do they know if I'm watching television? What a great question. And I'm glad you asked. They don't really know. Um, there's been all sorts of histories of pretending that they can figure out all sorts of things. But nonetheless, technically, you have to buy the licence fee. It dates back to a very, very um, past era when we didn't have the technology to actually charge people for the use of... Um, television broadcasters. In Australia, we had this as well. So the ABC was originally funded um, through a licence fee arrangement. We got rid of that in 1948 when um, the ABC came to the Chifley government, asked for a licence fee increase, and instead of nationalising the entire broadcasting sector, the Chifley government decided to um, just um, uh, pay the ABC out of general revenue. I think it's iconic – sorry, I think it's indicative that this proposal of the um, uh, of number ten is very unlikely to go anywhere given. Um, the response that it's had um, and given the role of the BBC in um, the public mind. But um, Dara, I might throw to you first. What What's your take on this, um, trying to get rid of this bizarre anachronism?
3: Well, I, I just wanna, wanted to add to your comment of um, that it's against the law and it's a strict liability offence as well. It doesn't matter why you didn't pay your licence fee. It doesn't matter that you know you, you couldn't afford a loaf of bread. If you get holed over to court, you have to pay a $1,000 fine at yeah. least, yeah. So it's not it's not at all. Um, if if anyone was going to argue that this is a poll tax, I think they have a particular <laughs> um, you know a leg to stand on there. And the other the other aspect is that they you know they have the goons that go around and they count how many televisions you have in in your in your home. And if it, it looks like it's plugged in, then okay, yes, you have to pay the tax. Um, so yeah, the, it, it is completely anachronistic. And but in this instance, it actually has worked out better because this. Actually, can trigger a, um, an argument that this should be a subscription model as opposed to a forced model, and actually have a humanitarian leg to stand on in a sense. Um, particularly if you look at it from a you know a legal point of view, that this is a strict liability offence. Um, yeah, so I I think that this is a very interesting conversation, and I don't know how we can pick it up into a into the Australian context where you know the the, you know, $1 billion that we send to the ABC is siphoned off in our taxes and we don't necessarily notice it coming out of our pocket in the same way. Um, but, yes, yeah, so it's a very interesting debate, particularly also when it, you, know, you take into the cultural aspect of of the BBC and um, that it is, gets as much ire around bias and um, this sort of aspect as well yeah.
1: compared to... What's, what's, what is actually the argument, though, that... Uh, Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings are running for this? Because there's a number of different arguments you might take. So for Chris, it's redundancy um, would be the argument. One would be political bias. One would be um, the cost that people shouldn't have to pay if they don't want to, if they don't use it. Um, Because the reason I ask that question is because the Conservative Party recently expanded its majority largely by taking seats off... Uh, Labour in working class areas who the, uh, who are accustomed, really, to having the BBC, um, they're probably more likely to support the retention of the BBC. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how this fits with how the Conservative government actually won the last election and whether they've taken seriously the reasons why they won.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think we've discussed... I can't remember whether you were on the podcast when we discussed this. Um, uh, the the simultaneous fact that Boris Johnson has um uh, taken a lot of left wing seats and has tacked very hard left. Um, those are the, those are two truths, and I can't help but think that they're deeply connected. and I think Johnson also sees um, uh, in and and the shutting down over the last twenty four hours of this proposal or at least the stepping back from this proposal by um uh, by by Boris Johnson personally s- seems to suggest that he has exactly yeah, the I, same I don't think I don't think the
1: redundancy argument. Probably applies as much to the BBC, um, whereas here in Australia, the, in what sense? Um, in that, um, basically, because it's it, it has it, it has such a, a suite of platforms that people are very accustomed to using. It's actually for a lot of British people, it's sort of their first port of call. Um, that the disruption of getting rid of the BBC would be greater. It takes up a larger part of their their market, their TV and stream, you know, all the other, all the platforms that they have, the radio and everything. Um, Whereas here in Australia, I mean, I would start smaller than you, Chris, I would start with the SBS, which is completely, almost extraordinarily redundant. It doesn't even, it doesn't even do what it used to say it did. Mm. Um, And as someone who... So
2: we thought, sorry to interrupt, we thought about putting the SBS... Uh, SBS in the book, but we thought it was too obviously boring <laughs> to yeah. do because it's obviously unnecessary, and the case for merging obviously it with the ABC... Obviously unnecessary to
0: be funded by
2: taxpayers. Yeah, so. sorry. It, the case for merging with the ABC is probably the easiest public policy decision any government could make in any Australian context, but it has not happened. Yeah, because <laughs> you
1: can get any foreign <laughs> programs you want. I mean, and I know this because my wife and I, my wife who is Peruvian, we watch a lot of um, Spanish language material on Netflix <laughs> um, and indeed YouTube. I mean, Melissa has not missed one episode of her favourite shows from Peru and this has nothing to do with SBS. <laughs> nothing <laughs> to do with It's <laughs>
0: completely it. redundant. <laughs> um, yes. And, uh, and also, um, this is not a well-developed argument, but let's face it, the ABC is not even in the same ballpark as the BBC <laughs> in terms of the degree of difficulties of unpacking the BBC. I mean, yeah. the ABC, its the best argument against the ABC at the moment is most of what actually they broadcast.
2: Yeah, no, I, I, I we Sounds were Sounds like this a conversation. gratuitous
0: slide, but there's a, there's a fact-free zone. We were having it, this conversation it's before generally and, terrible. And
2: why is the BBC so popular and part of it is not because of the news broadcasting all that. It's because of the, the, the TV shows that it puts on are like quite good or well-loved. And there's a genre that they have in the UK that they the ABC does not produce but is such an important genre to the BBC and that's the, um, the surprisingly high murder rate in the village shows <laughs> yeah, exactly. where it's just the detective just finds the next person's being killed, the next person's being killed. People love that. Now, why is the ABC either... <laughs> uninterested or constitutionally unable to produce that sort of content. It, the, the answer to that puzzle is a big reason why it would be a hell of a lot easier. Yeah, if, to, I, if,
1: um, I, if I were the minister, I would just direct – I wouldn't actually get rid of the ABC. I would just direct them to create and screen pro-Australian propaganda all the time. But, I mean, the murder happened. rate
2: murder rate in the village is not pro-British propaganda.
1: No, it's, pro- it's pro-rural <laughs> depopulation. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and
2: the discussion we it's had... An that argument that for urbanisation. No, but, no, but it the, is not safe in the village. But the discussion Get we are having, Andrew,
0: out. is they can't do it because the ABC can't produce anything about Australia without irony. Yeah, They it's can do broad-brush stuff yeah. like Kath and Kim, which is brilliant, absolute piss-take, but even when they try to do it seriously, they can't. I mean, they set a show in Tasmania, but it's ironic. It's taking the piss. They just can't help themselves because <laughs> they're alienated inner urban intellectuals, aren't they, Andrew? Well, absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of books and culture, uh, ABC's about culture. Uh, we have come to that part of the program where we discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to. And uh, shall we start off with Jojo Rabbit? Yeah. So um,
2: uh, I watched, finally, Jojo Rabbit. I missed it in the cinema. Um, uh, Jojo Rabbit, the uh, new movie directed by... By Taika Waititi, it, um, many listeners will know that it won the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar. It's based on a um, based on a novel. Um, it stars Waititi himself, Scarlett Johansson, with um, a child actor who's. Um, go, it, 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 who who it's their first movie, um, and it's also got smaller parts by Sam Rockwell and Rebel Wilson. Um, uh, for those who don't know, and I'm sure most readers, listeners, I should say, do, um, it's about a young German boy who is a fanatical Nazi in the 1940s. I think it's set in 1944. I think I picked that up. Um, who has Adolf Hitler as his imaginary friend? Um, Watidi himself plays. Um, adolf hitler apparently because he couldn't find any other actors to play the comic <laughs> version of adolf hitler there's really Fun, two things event, there's there's two fairly um simple observations to make mo- to make um this is a very very um well done addition to the genre of nazi themed comedies of which there is a small but influential number life is beautiful of course which i think won the oscar andrew i'm looking at you won an oscar um, yeah some years ago the Roberto great di- benigni Yep, The the Great Dictator, um, of course, the Charlie Chaplin movie and the producers. Um, uh, But Watini himself is like a a one-man New Zealand film renaissance. His films are uniformly incredible. He has managed to... um, really do challenging films or simple films and make them more challenging or make them more interesting um and it's very much well worth watching the other thing i've written down is anybody seen the movie who uh, the other nazi themed comedy is um look who's back has anybody seen look who's back oh yes oh, it's I did. a I 2015 did. german movie yes. about what happens if hitler just turns up one day, he,
0: and he, he wakes up just outside the bunker, and like, oh, it's twenty fifteen. Yeah,
2: and and it, the movie doesn't quite work, and there's um, it, it, it tries to have a bit of a cinema verite where they get real Germans to to talk to this fake Hitler and say, oh, yes, you did really well in the time, and so it's supposed to be an expose of how racist Germany still is. But um, uh, anyway, that's all I. Really yeah, there's
1: the the, about the, that. the producers, of course, is the other yeah, big one that yeah. makes fun of, and and this is because the. The, the Nazis had such a unique sense of style, to put it to put it one way, um, that they actually you know they lend themselves to parody because it's just quite ridiculous. the Hugo um, Boss suits. Yeah, it's all the it's all the you know really sharp tailoring and the and the and the stylized like design, um, the whole aesthetic uh, lends itself to a kind of parody, except for the extraordinarily terrible things that they did so it's a fine line is there to something walk.
2: to is there something to say about comedy out of horror
0: yeah I, th- I think how do you find a way in to something as awful as the holocaust it, it, it's um i was watching spielberg the other day and what it took for him to get uh, uh, to make schindler's list and uh, so what's that late 80s um, no 94 94 okay so you know, fifty years the after the best
2: year in movies.
0: Yeah, yeah, fifty oh, years Lord, after the that? end of the war, to find a way to tell the story of of Auschwitz. Um, and until then, it had only been Mel Brooks who could who could talk about the Nazis, um, and and who these people were, because um, only comedy could find a way in. And maybe over time, that's that's changed, and we have some historical perspective. But um, Popular culture, I think, is it is a good way. Yeah, I think
1: there's a, the the caution is around um, not making not making World War Two and and Nazi Germany seem banal, mm. like just another just another quirky occurrence in human history. Um, so I think that's the the fine line that people have to walk is that because on one hand you you want to you want to you know laugh at these people for their ridiculous beliefs and things, but on the other hand you want to make sure that. Um, the consequences of it aren't aren't downplayed. And I think, um, you know, if he's been able to do it, I haven't seen the movie, but if he's been able to do that, then that is quite some trick.
2: Traditionally what they do, and the producers is not this um, example, but they start light and end dark. So um, uh, that's the strategy that Life is Beautiful used, it starts light and ends quite dark and, and very sad and serious. And in fact, Jojo Rabbit is not just a comedy all the way through. It's actually, it actually becomes quite affecting and quite powerful um, because you know, it, it brings out those themes and it says yeah. interesting things. And, and
0: my kids went, so, so you know, we should never forget. And if that gets 15-year-olds in cinemas knowing something about the Nazis as opposed yep. to nothing, which is what you get at school, um, then that's a good thing. Yep. Dara.
3: Uh, actually, I'm, I'm falling on the theme a little bit um, in the sense that my podcast recommendation is The Portal with Eric Weinstein. And he's the original coiner of this concept of the intellectual dark web. So The Portal is the concept that we're stuck in this kind of um, humdrum kind of existence and we need the way out. We need the way out of, you know, all these different... Uh, institutional uh, complexes that we find ourselves in, whether it's academia or uh, the mainstream media or whatever the case may be. Um, the portal is kind of trying to find the heterodox view in the circumstance and getting getting the hell out of this, you know, industrial complex of the university or whatever it might be. Um, the first episode, though, is incredibly interesting because he interviews his boss, Peter Thiel, um, <laughs> And they talk about the dichotomies in their relationship, the first being that he's... They're
1: always the most honest views with your boss. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, He does come across as quite sycophantic, perhaps even in awe of Peter Thiel. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, Peter Peter Thiel, well, he's made a lot of money out of of PayPal and Facebook and and, and various Silicon Valley ventures and he's worth a couple of billions. So, yeah, I'd be sycophantic too. Yeah, yeah. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
3: so they interview, he interviews him, and they they talk about the dichotomies in their relationship, first being that he's a, you know, a libertarian right-wing economics, you know, economist, and then also that he, you know, he supported Trump, and then obviously Eric Weinstein is a bit to the left, left-wing in terms of economics and so on, so they're talking about these dichotomies in their relationship, but also where they meet in the sense that they also think that there's a stagnation problem in terms of technology that, you know, if we went uh, you, if you took someone from, you know, 1940 to here, to the present day, that would be astounded. But if you took someone from, you know, 1980 to now, you know, apart from the phones and the laptop and these sorts of things, it's basically we're not driving around in, you know, you don't have jetpacks or... Well, where's the flying maybe. cars? Exactly. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, I, li- I, I like think I li- wild yeah. anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, I think we may agree for once yeah. on this. Yeah. I... But perhaps for different reasons. But I think, um, I like Peter Thiel, but when I was listening to this, it it struck me that um, it's not so incredible that in a 50-year period, the world might not have changed unrecognisably. Mm -hmm. If you went to any period in human history, that would be the norm, that things would persist for much longer than 50 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think there's this kind of, um, among sort of accelerationist types, if you like, there's this kind of, longing for permanent revolution and they're disappointed that the time frames for development because of physical time-bounded human beings being what they are they get disappointed by that and i just that's the part of his analysis where i'm like so like so what right so what that a car is still a car so what that um a tv is still a tv i mean
0: At least we've got a taco that can actually stand up on a table. (laughs) There is (laughs) progress. That is true.
2: Um, I don't know who has hard tacos, but those are strange people. Um, But, uh, no, I think that's uh, uh, the biggest change that has happened in hundreds of years, I would say, would be the massive communications revolution, which is hard to see but easy to feel, um, insofar as you can instantly at any time have any human answer to any question that you want now that has incredible political consequences um, uh, because rightly or wrongly people um you know we, we get lots of complex um conspiracy theories we get lots of um uh interesting political movements from left and right and center and from 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 wherever but that is a enormous change and it's really easy for us to forget how um, radical a change it was And I remember starting When I started at the IPA I would ask people Who had been at the We're, IPA For much longer I'm, than I I'm
0: looking at the clock here
2: Chris okay. Is this
0: going to be a long story? No,
2: no <laughs> I would ask them <laughs> When how I started earth, How IPA. on earth would you do your research? And they would say We would go to the library and What do you mean you go to the library? Wasn't that incredibly time consuming? We get everything we want on The internet right now and the social, political, economic consequences of that have not been fully recognised, let alone worked out.
0: Indeed. I just wanted to ask, Dara, so that was the mission that Weinstein set himself in the first episode – to find these portals uh, have you been listening to other episodes and yeah. is he getting any closer to it is it <laughs> a, is he actually anywhere near that mission of finding the way out of the morass in which we find ourselves
3: in a way i mean the the second dichotomy that they explore is the you know that he's jewish ancestry and that he, he had you know family that died in the holocaust and peter till is german so they d- explore this dichotomy so It expands on this throughout the episodes and there's a few really good ones. One is with Brett um, Easton Ellis, the American psycho guy, and they're talking about the darkness of the period of uh, darkness in L.A. in the period of um, the 80s, basically, and that's an interesting kind of window into how the world has changed. And then the another one is with uh, Julia Lindell, which is a – the granddaughter of an SS officer, which he invites into her his house, um, basically, and and stays with him, and they do a podcast ex- exploring kind of how she's come to terms with her history, in that respect. So there's a few very dark ones and a few very light ones, um, but yeah, they're very interesting conversations that kind of take you out of the normal normal paradigm of of human conversation in in the stage
0: very good uh well worth a listen i might uh, jump in here with um just to mix it up with a book uh what i am holding up is uh william dalrymple's the anarchy Um, uh, dalrymple made a tour he's a uh, famously an historian of india I, he came to Australia a few months ago and I went to um, see him talk, um, which I'm glad I did because he basically summarised the whole book for me. Um, <laughs> it's taken, <laughs> taken me a while to plough through it. But this is a history of um, – so it's, uh, it's called The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company. And I must admit it, uh, it did – I had not never really thought about how astounding it was that you know, we talk, we know about the British Raj, uh, Queen Victoria, Empress of India, blah 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 blah. But of course, it was not the English government which ever set out to conquer India. Well, no one set out to conquer India. Um, what they did, as they used to do, uh, was set up a, a chartered corporation to issue shares, and it had the mission mission of trade with India. Mm. And uh, you know, all European powers were doing this. The French were were trading in India, but then we had this remarkable thing that this little trading post, um which, you know, they established Calcutta as a trading post. They they were there under sufferance from the local rulers, uh, that you know they had to pay the, the taxes and the bribes and all this sort of thing. it started at a time when England uh was not um particularly successful on the world stage. And then uh in the eighteenth century they went from being um a bunch of traders with, with bodyguards to having the world's largest army, and you know, ruling all of Bengal, and subjugating the the Mughal emperor and getting him to give a fig leaf of legitimacy to their to their so called concession. Essentially, they ruled India, and um, uh, and then in later periods extended that you know to the to the parts south and west. I mean, it's just astounding that this was uh, it had a board of directors they weren't reporting to the prime minister they were reporting to a board of directors and half of the parliament owned chairs so they they would just you know license it to do whatever the hell it want you know some um they replaced uh a period you know replaced the local rulers sometimes for the better um, sometimes for the worse so they incredibly rapacious this was a for profit corporation and all of the people there were just extracting as much wealth out of the local people as they could and india was a fabulously wealthy country i mean this is one of the things that uh, you know in india and china can never work out like what what happened god damn it you know how did the west actually become dominant because you know india had this fabulous civilization and fabulous wealth and got you know beaten up by this stupid corporation and a similar thing happened to the to the Chinese which they say now see as a great humiliation and and so credit to William Dalrymple it, it is well told as a story uh, and I think also uh, not today's not the day to do it but it reflects also on some of the issues in this High Court decision because it's about how do how did the British Empire manage legitimacy in the different countries that had finished up Ruling, and uh, there was one thing to settle a country uh, like Australia and and to claim various rights under international law to settle a country like New Zealand and argue from a different basis in international law um, and conclude treaties uh, but in India, it was as del Wimple said an anarchy, and it wasn 't until the nineteenth century that the British came in and, and took finally took over and asserted sovereignty and tried to put it on you know, anything like a,
1: a proper legal
0: basis. It's actually a remarkable book. I, I recommend
1: it. Yeah. Well, it sounds like uh, the future for Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> <So> with, it, <laughs> with its own armies, just, yeah, just uh, armies of drones just overhead correcting your behaviour, directing you to buy things in boxes. Yeah,
0: I think um, yeah, it's there's been plenty. Another b-
1: picture of Andrew's internal monologue there.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there's plenty. Um, uh, the Peter F. Hamilton, I think, has a, has a, has a future in which um, the corporations—there's basically a hundred corporations which banded together um, to you know to rule rule the universe. Yeah, I think that was
1: the premise for uh, Demolition Man, the great Sylvester Stallone movie. Yes, that is a good movie.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's only one restaurant and it's called Taco Bell. Yeah. Yeah. Take <laughs> um, it away.
1: Uh, I'm conscious of the time. I'll just do this this quick, quickly because my choice, I really only wanted to make two points about it. It's called Sweet Smell of Success. It's a movie from 1957 by a guy named uh, Alex McKendrick. Um, and the, the, the point that I wanted to make was just, one, this is a very good movie. If you haven't heard of it, <laughs> Um, it's actually, I, and I came across it on Stan, um, looking Stan. for, yeah, looking for like an old, I was looking for, cause they don't have categories and I was like looking for <laughs> old movies because, um, and this was the second point that I wanted to make, this is a very good movie. The second point I wanted to make was that old movies are more important now than ever before because... Movies, I think we've talked about this before, have become vehicles simply for delivering ideology. It's very hard to suspend your disbelief. I actually find them less enjoyable when I'm being preached at. McKendrick was certainly no conservative. I think actually he ended up leaving Hollywood, um, spent the second half of his career teaching film. Um, He was one of the pioneers in teaching film um, and the inspiration for that sort of film school brat 1970s (laughs) movement. So it's not like he was some sort of rabid, Conservative, And it's not like this movie is, um, you know, right wing or whatever. But it's just like, it's just an a, a interesting little story told very well. It's about um, basically you have to, the only bit you have to suspend your disbelief on is that it's about a newspaper columnist who is so powerful he can make or break careers, <laughs> which doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. Um, but anyway, he's the, this gossip columnist and it's about a public relations guy who places stories with him. And basically the guy turns off access until this public relations guy played by Tony Curtis um, gets his sister to break up with this jazz musician. So he starts basically sending sending out scuttlebutt around this guy and basically trying to wreck this guy's life and try and manage this relationship with this overbearing, extremely powerful gossip columnist played by Burt Lancaster. And it's just got like a really uh, good old-fashioned script full of like witticisms um, and it's, yeah, I just think it's, it's, it was really, the reason I wanted to recommend this to people was it was very refreshing to me to watch it um, compared to some of the, the more recent Hollywood output.
0: And proper wordplay. I think that was another thing that we were talking about on our uh, conversation channel this week was uh, the, the witticisms, the, 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 yeah. the ability with words as opposed to
1: what just, part, just passes just 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 dumb, dumbfounded reaction shots. Like, oh, that guy said
0: something dumb. which is uh, 90% of movies nowadays I think was the point somebody was making you have been listening to Looking Forward which is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs don't forget to go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join or donate if you haven't already if you're already a member thank you so much for your support and letting us do what we do do go to our website to look at our latest research on the high court decision and other things like that uh, I'd like to thank my panellists today, Chris Berg, Dara McDonald, thank you. Andrew Bushnell, Cheers. and of course Josh in the studio control room. Thanks as always for helping us put our show together. We'll be back with more looking forward next week.